I'm not going to ask how everybody's doing because I don't want to know. I got my own problems. I got to give a talk. No, I, I do hope that uh, <laughs> your day has been productive and fruitful. Um, I wanted to tell you about my first retreat. It was uh, Thanksgiving weekend of 1980. Um, and I'd heard about Vipassana from someone who'd been on a retreat with Joseph Goldstein the previous spring. And, and I, I was, at the time I was doing TM, uh, Transcendental Meditation, which um, didn't help me to transcend anything, unfortunately. Um, and that summer, uh, one night I got really drunk and um, had a fight with my girlfriend who was a Buddhist practitioner. And so the next day I figured the way to make up to her was to go to a Buddhist center and learn to do Buddhist meditation because that would improve our relationship, I figured. So by the fall I was doing Vipassana and uh, taking a class uh, so it was in L.A., um, the International Buddhist Meditation Center, and there was a monk there. Um, it was a typical monk. Uh, he was from Brooklyn, and uh, he had spent some years in uh, <coughs> Sri Lanka and uh, came back to... Uh, well, he came back, anyway, from Sri Lanka, and uh, he was an interesting guy. He's still around. He's not a monk anymore. I won't name him because I don't want to, you know, I do enough wrong speech as it is. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, you know, my girlfriend was going to go on this retreat and, you know, convinced me to go. And, uh, and the thing was that I knew that if I, get, first of all, every time I sat, my knees just killed me. And, you know, I would try to sit for 45 minutes and, you know, about 20 minutes into it, my knees would start to hurt and I'd just, I'd grit my teeth through it, I'd get through it. So the one thing that I knew about this retreat was that by the end of the retreat, my knees would never hurt anymore because obviously if you meditate for five days, you'll solve all that problem. (laughs) And, um, you know, and I just was really looking forward to how blissful I was going to be after the retreat and just how deep my meditation was going to be. So so we set off on uh, Wednesday night, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, to drive out to the desert. It was in uh, Joshua Tree, a place made famous by you too. But it's uh, actually, I don't even know if they went there. Um, but uh, it was this great uh, Dharma center. It's still there, Dhamma Dana. It was founded by Ruth Dennison, one of our revered elders. Um, and uh, it's kind of a rustic place with a lot of different buildings spread across this mesa. And we got there uh, after dark because it takes a long time to get out of L.A. on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And we were driving, had to drive down this dirt road and the sandy roads. And come to, there's a little sign with an arrow. It says Vipassana. <laughs> uh, 
we must be in the right place. Oh, cool. And it was, you know, it was kind of dramatic. And, and we get to the place and get settled in. And um, there were a lot of people. There were about 40 people, about this number of people on the retreat. And, oh, you know, I got there late, so I didn't get a good place to sleep. I had to sleep in the, on the floor in the living room of the... Now, you know, the, the buildings here are all named after the Brahma Viharas, lovely names like loving kindness, joy... Um, Mudita, oh, that's my joy. Karuna, compassion, equanimity. The building I was staying in is called Dukkha, which means <laughs> suffering. Yeah. So that should have been a clue right there. Um, I overslept the, next, the first morning. Someone had to kick me to wake me up after the bell. I never heard the bell. Um, went in there to meditate. The meditation hall was about a quarter the size of this one with about the number of people that are here. And we were literally knee to knee. I was facing someone meditating with my knees like that. <laughs> we could practically follow their breath, you know. And I stacked up my zafus. I had about four of them, and just so that my knees wouldn't hurt. And uh, just proceeded to suffer uh, for several days. And... Uh, you know, I, I just, I was sure something was going to happen at some point. Um, and, uh, you know, I sort of, I already had sort of a relationship with this teacher. And, and uh, I would kind of drop in to, on him from time to time in his living quarters, unannounced. Uh, and when he was giving interviews for people, but I sort of couldn't wait for that. And, uh, you know, one morning I had to show him because it was so amazing to me the way the orange peel looked after I'd peeled it. And I was, it was kind of like LSD a little bit, you know. Um, I'm sure he was impressed with the orange peel, <laughs> uh, as was I. Um, the, the last day of the retreat came, and everyone had had an interview except me. And I was really uh, just concerned. What what had happened, you know. I, and, and then I started to feel abandoned. Um, after lunch, he would play, he would put on a tape, uh, so we would have, like, it would sort of be like an additional Dharma talk, uh, which was great. And that, that day he was playing a, 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 it's amazing, I remember this. My, you know, I can't remember, like, yesterday, but I can remember that he was playing a tape by uh, Christina Feldman on Compassion. And, my, and and in right in the middle of it, I just was like, I've got to go get my interview. You know, I'm, he's, you know, he's forgotten me. So, like, to get out of the meditation hall, you had to put your feet like between people's legs, and you know, <laughs> and, like the, you know, somebody has their legs crossed, and you're putting your foot right in here between their knee and their ankle. You know, so I had to climb over all these people. And my girlfriend later on told me how pissed off she was because she really thought I needed to hear about compassion. <laughs> And I was leaving during the talk. <laughs> so I went to the building, the house uh, that uh, my teacher was staying in and knocked on the door. He opened the door and I sort of dramatically, to kind of make my point, went, I want my interview. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, okay, come on in. 
It's like, you know, I sort of thought that since you'd visited me several times that you kind of had your interview. I was like, well, that didn't count, you know. Come on, I want my official interview. So he actually, it was quite a, a nice moment where he, uh, uh, and he later told me he was really impressed by how quickly I responded to this. He, he said, think of a time, you know, he sat me down on the couch, think of a time, the first time in your life when you felt abandoned. And I immediately remembered being four years old and left at the nursery school by my mother and standing on the steps and crying. And I just started crying there in front of my teacher and just bawling. And uh, I guess he was like, oh, that worked, you know. <laughs> I'm good, you know. <laughs> and then uh, the tears, you know, came and then they, they went. And then I, was, I was really trying to be mindful through all this, amazingly, as, as, as much as I was missing, clearly. Um, I was trying to be mindful, and when the tears stopped, you know, I just had this really warm sense of relief, and I was sitting there, and a fly landed on my hand. And for the first time in my life, I just looked at the fly walking across my hand, and it, it didn't bother me at all. I didn't feel any need to move. I just felt total, totally at peace. It was an amazing moment of just complete release and, and um, acceptance, you know, just being present. It was a very powerful moment, and then it passed. Um, and I, so the retreat ended, and I, I went home. And that week, um, which was the week when I was supposed to be in bliss, I cried every day. And I wrote a song called The Vipassana Blues, <laughs> uh, which has a line, um, you're trying to open up your mind to take a look at what's inside, but you better know you might not like what you find. And that was how I was feeling, you know. It was, it was shocking to me. I, here I thought that this was going to be the culminating experience of my practice. Five days of meditation, you know, my God, this is just going to completely change my life. And it was not the culmination, it was the beginning of my practice. Only the beginning. And, and it was five years before I got sober after that. You know, I had the idea that somehow a few days of meditation was going to solve all my problems. And, and I had had that idea about several things in my life. You know, and I, and I kept you know, thinking that you know, a woman would make me happy that if I just did transcendental meditation twice a day for 20 minutes, it didn't matter what I did the rest of the time in the day. As long as I just put in those 20 minutes twice a day. You know, I had that same belief when I went into therapy at 14. Um, the psychiatrist is going to fix me, is going to heal me. Um, you know, and so one of the things that I've seen over the years is that um, we get confused about cause and effect. I know I do. And I certainly was confused in those days. Um, you know, my goal was to be a rock and roll star. You know, and thinking that you're, by meditating you're going to become a rock and roll star. I mean, what's the relationship? You know? um, and, and my life was a complete disaster, uh, at least well, externally and internally at that point. Um, you know, uh, my music career was actually... Uh, really hitting bottom. Uh, you know, I was in a relationship with a younger woman 
who was, she was eight years younger than me and she was about 20 years more mature than me. She went off and became a Zen master while I was trying to get sober. You know, that's about, um, you know, I had no relationship with my family. Um, I was just totally lost. And I, and I didn't, the worst part is that I didn't know that I was totally lost. So, so I was floundering around trying to find myself uh, in ways that weren't going to really solve any of the problems I had. So um, I was talking with uh, a therapist friend of mine the other day who's been a therapist for decades and who's worked a lot in treatment. Uh, he's sober himself and, and he's completely really done with the whole kind of therapeutic model and he, he, he's worked at some of the best treatment centers in the country and he, he won't do that anymore. He, he, doesn't, he can't deal with the idea of a diagnosis saying, you know, you've got this disease and, and I'm the therapist and I'm going to fix you. So I, I asked him, well, what do you do with people now when, you, when you're in therapy with, when you're, you know, they're in therapy with you? And he said, I try to help them develop a therapeutic relationship with themselves. And I thought, oh, he tries to help them develop a therapeutic relationship with themselves. He doesn't do therapy for them. He tries to teach them to be their own therapist. And it, that immediately resonated with me because I've, you know, one of the things that I've taken to saying is you have to become your own meditation teacher. So uh, what I'm maybe going to say now is we're trying to help you develop a meditative relationship with yourself. So I want to talk um, about, uh, about meditation and, and, and the spiritual path and what, uh, my, you know, my, my fundamental question is, how do we change? How do we grow? And one of the things that I found very frustrating reading the 12 and 12 uh, was that step seven was the one that I thought, well, this is about letting go. We humbly ask God to remove our defective character. How is that going to happen? And Bill Wilson never answers that question, and, and not to my satisfaction. And, and um, I, wanted, you know, I wanted guidance on that. So first I want to talk about what I think teachers can give. Because I think that we do the same things with our teachers that we do with our therapists. You know, you go to therapy and at least, you know, I know when I started, I thought they were going to fix me. And I thought that my meditation teacher was going to fix me or at least tell me what to do to meditate right and tell me what I was doing wrong and fix that and get me on track. So just a, there's a few things. There, there may be others, but a few things that I've made note of that, that I think that a meditation teacher can do can give you some tools, so offer you some tools. Here, try these. We can give you some inspiration. I know I've been inspired by my teachers because it looks to me like, you know, as we say in AA and 12-step, they have what I want. I want what they have. Um, some degree of serenity and insight, 
balance in their lives. And teachers can also help us to gain insight. But this is a tricky, this is where it gets tricky. Um, I wanted my teacher to take me from A to Z in insight. I wanted to start from where I was, which was deluded. And I, I wanted them to do something or say something that would make me enlightened. And what I think a teacher can do is take you from like E to F. You know, like if you've done some work and built a foundation, they can help you sometimes to open up to the thing that you're ready to learn. I mean, the truth is that you can only, when you hear a teacher and what they say seems really, wow, that just blew my mind what they said. Wow, I learned so much. The reason that's happening is because you were prepared to hear that. If you hadn't done all the work to get you ready to hear that, it would just go, Phew. I mean, have you ever read a book or like a spiritual book or heard a talk that you'd heard before and this time it sounded totally different and you heard totally different things? The talk didn't change. You changed your ability to hear. The limitation of teachers is that teachers teach what they know. And one of the problems that you can run into is teachers who believe that what they know is the one path. Buddha says something interesting about this that I just read. He's talking to someone about um, being able to say something definitively. What he's saying um, that to say only this is true, anything else is worthless. You can only say that if you really know. And and someone's saying, well, what should I say? He says, if a person has conviction, his statement, this is my conviction, safeguards the truth. But he doesn't yet come to the definite conclusion that only this is true, anything else is worthless. So this is the place that I believe most teachers should teach from. This is my conviction, but I don't know that it's absolutely true. But there's a tendency, if someone has a breakthrough or spiritual breakthrough, to believe that they figured something out, like they figured out how it happened. But my experience is that a lot of the time when you have a spiritual breakthrough, you don't actually know how it happened. You, you know something of what must have brought it about because you've been there through your life leading up to that moment. But you don't really know which of the things you did brought that about. Um, so what ha- can happen, though, is that people start to overemphasize or focus on just a single aspect of the path. So this is what's happening in our culture, in our broader culture, around the practice of mindfulness now. Mindfulness has become a buzzword. It's become a fad, in fact, um, among, particularly in the psychotherapeutic community. Um, and obviously, as someone who's tried to practice mindfulness for almost 30 years, I'm really glad that people are learning about mindfulness. And 
I have huge concerns that someone is stepping in, to the, reaching into the Eightfold Path and pulling out one piece and saying, here, this is the way to heal your uh, emotions. This is the way to deal with your uh, food addiction. This is the way to deal with your stress. Here, just do mindfulness. It's a little like taking the, or- the, the vitamin C out of an orange and making a pill and handing someone the pill and saying, here's your fruit for the day. Yeah, well, you might get your vitamins, but you know, you're going to be missing a lot, and you're going to actually need to eat something after that. You know, you're not going to be full. So uh, this is done in many traditions with many different techniques and different aspects of the path, and um, and yet, what I think is that the the whole path is what's Important, And if we try to isolate parts of the path selectively because we think that's what's best, we're probably making a decision based on our own preferences, which are often based in delusion. So we have to really take care that we uh, embrace the whole path. Now, there's a... a um, saying in 12 steps about doing the two-step, like one and 12 or something. Um, And and it's the same thing there, I think. So I'd like to talk about a few of the the components of just, uh, well, or, or just kind of broader methods of practice and spiritual work. Um, So concentration, which is something we're working on a lot here, very powerful practice. Um, that's what transcendental meditation is actually supposed to develop, although I had no clue at the time and didn't develop any. Um, and concentration is uh, the way to get high with meditation. So it's uh, very alluring. Uh, once you find how to get concentrated, it's easy to start to believe that that's the way you're supposed to feel when you're meditating and that if you're not feeling that way, that centered, kind of energetic, or however, it can manifest in many ways, but if you're not feeling that kind of cozy way, that you're having a bad meditation or that it's not working. The Buddha, in fact, uh, developed the deepest concentration states that we that are kind of recorded anyway called the jhanas and after achieving them his teachers both his teachers who taught them to him said i've taught you everything i know come on and teach with me you're my best student and his response was no because i'm not free of suffering i can met i can concentrate and i feel great then but when i stop concentrating when the conditions you know i get up from my cushion and or if you probably didn't have a cushion, when I get up from my pile of dirt, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I'm still, I'm, I still have, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion. I'm still suffering. So he saw the limits of concentration, and it was really when he combined concentration with mindfulness that he has his breakthrough. So we can certainly say that mindfulness is a tremendously powerful tool, 
and, and many teachers emphasize that as really that's what you should strictly do, mindfulness. Um, but mindfulness has its limits as well if it's not supported, if it's not supported by concentration, for instance. But also, going back further, if we look at the Eightfold Path, if it's not supported by sila, which is the precepts, if it's not supported by living a skillful life. This is a part of the path that I completely ignored when I began to practice. And it was something, you know, I, I will say that, that there was a little collaboration with the teachers because at that time there was much less of an emphasis on sila in our community. Um, and, you know, a lot of the people had kind of come out of the 60s and, they, you know, people go to, went to India and had these experiences and then came back and they, even if they had really connected with Sila in Asia, they kind of knew that the culture in the West wasn't going to go for too much, you know, of that stuff. They wanted the juice. We want the good stuff. You know, give me the real enlightenment. Uh, I don't want to be told about, you know, not drinking and not using drugs and, you know, restraining myself sexually. I mean, come on. This is, you know... We've, we've let all that go, all those repressive things that our parents tried to impose on us. Um, so, uh, you know, consequently, uh, you know, I was living a, what I would call now an immoral life, <laughs> uh, not to be too judgmental. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it, and it's not, and it was, it's not a question of, oh, that's bad. It's a question of what that does to your mind, to your heart and mind, to live that way. Because essentially, that life is one of just pursuing pleasure, which means that you are constantly acting on desire. And since the cause of suffering is desire and clinging, it just means you're creating more suffering in that way. You know, you think you're bringing, getting pleasure, but if you look closely, you see that underlying that is this constant restlessness, this constant dissatisfaction. So the, the morality precepts are not about good or bad. They're about what you create in your experience from that. It's about looking past the initial experience and seeing what's really going on, how that's affecting your life. And of course, as an addict and alcoholic, I did not have a long-term view. You know, My long-term view was, how am I going to get loaded tonight? How am I going to get laid tonight? You know, That's great. Uh, but... But to actually consider how these behaviors are affecting me over the last six months or the last five years, no, never thought about it. There was just none of that view. So, um, so a few more aspects of the path. A few more, uh, not even aspects, but, but approaches to the path. Prayer is a very powerful practice, right? Um, something in the 12 steps, and all religions have prayer, even Buddhism, although we don't like to admit that, but you know, what is loving, what is saying may I be happy, may you be happy if it's not a prayer it's a prayer it's a beautiful prayer uh, prayer is very powerful it's a concentration practice, it's also an intention setting practice, it's a heart opening practice, it has many positive effects, but if you only work with prayer, there's a tendency to start to expect your prayers to come true. Now, this is the delusion around prayer that people develop. Oh, if I just say these words over and over, then the world will be transformed. You know, 
Um, that's, that's delusion. So, uh, again, we have to see prayer in its context of what it's useful for and what it's not going to accomplish. Um, the path of devotion, surrender, faith, very powerful path. Uh, many people have had tremendous openings through that path. And if we only have that, we don't really develop self-reliance or wisdom. We are, we become, we can become dependent on a guru or teacher, or we become attached to the state of the heart open. And when difficult things happen, we, we either avoid that, try to sort of rise above it. We're all spiritual and happy here, you know. Uh, we, you know, we, this, this trying to avoid suffering, trying to evade suffering by being just so full of love. The path of service, another just incredible path, and one which we see, of course, in all spiritual traditions. Certainly, the twelve steps. This is the, this is the crowning teaching of the twelve steps. Having had a spiritual awakening, as a result of this, these steps, we tried to help other alcoholics. We didn't. We didn't go float off on a cloud. In the same way the Buddha, when he became enlightened, he didn't just float off or go sit in a cave. He went and served because there was nothing else to do. There was nothing to do for himself anymore. He was done. So the only thing left to do was to serve others. And in, in that, which of course reflects the insight that really I'm not separate from others. But the trap of service is the trap of the codependent. The, the, when we get caught up in the idea that I have to make other people happy in order for me to be happy. If I'm not serving others, I'm not really worthy. You know, I'm only, it's only what I can give others that makes me a worthy human being. So there are, there are other paths, there are other aspects of the path. Um, but this is just um, a few of them. And of the, of the pieces and, and what I think a wholesome and mature spiritual life is, is one that includes all of this and encompasses all of this. Our job as practitioners is to understand what needs to be done now. Uh, you know, what needs to be cultivated now. Um, and this is very difficult because you are, I think I've already said this, but you're meditating with the same mind that got you in trouble in the first place. So, you know, one of the first things and really ongoing things that we have to do with our practice is to be figuring out which voice to trust in the mind. It talks about this in the big book about how uh, we start to develop intuition as we get sober and start to work the steps, but that at first we make a lot of mistakes and, uh, you know, sort of get caught up in, uh, you know, thinking we're hearing our inner guidance when we're just hearing our ego. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the process of the 12 steps and the process of the Eightfold Path. And I'm not sure if I'm going to do it together or apart. We'll see how it goes.
So the, the process of the 12 steps starts with this recognition of our addiction, what we call hitting bottom. And this is, you know, as I said, was it earlier today already? Or was it yesterday? Wow. It's like weeks ago. Was this morning? How long ago does this morning seem? Uh, That this is seeing our suffering. It's seeing the truth of our suffering, which is the first noble truth. So the Buddha is telling us the same thing that the 12 steps are, that If you're going to start on a path, you need to see your own suffering. And actually, the Buddha is saying you need to see suffering in general. But for our purposes, to see our own suffering is a start. And this is, you know, it doesn't sound like it would be difficult. But, of course, we spend our lives, so much of our lives, trying to not suffer, which is a natural thing to do, to try to feel good, that eventually we, if, uh, at least when we're caught up in an addiction, we stop being able to even see it. So to see it uh, is also the beginning of the Eightfold Path, right view. This is one of the aspects of right view, seeing suffering, seeing the truth of our suffering. On the Eightfold Path, seeing suffering then um, opens us into right intention. When we see suffering and we see its cause, then we set our intention to basically to let go of craving because we see that the cause of suffering is craving. Of course, that's the same thing that happens in in the steps. We see that our addiction is causing our suffering. So, you know, this process of coming to believe that something is going to help us uh, and changing our behavior uh, is step three. The, there's, there's different ways the Eightfold Path is broken down. But one of, in one of them, um, we, see, we start with the right view and right intention we see the truth and then we set our intention to live in harmony with that truth. And then we start to live the moral aspects of the, the path, the right livelihood, right speech, and right action. Right action is the precepts. And then, and then after that, we develop meditation. Um, the other way, the other way the Eightfold Path is described is that we start with the morality, which is really the way the, the Buddha taught lay people, mostly, uh, beginners like us. He, he said, you know, he didn't say, okay, start, you know, first thing you should do is sit down and meditate. That's what we do in the West. But really what he said, the first thing you should do is learn to be generous, which turns out to be a really good way to learn how to let go. And then he taught people the precepts of morality. And only then did he teach them meditation. And then the meditation 
leads to the ultimate right view. So right view appears actually at the beginning and the end of the path. You need right view to sort of get started, but the culmination of right view is enlightenment. So in the, in the uh, 12 steps, uh, the 12 steps are very sila-oriented, very morality-oriented. We turn our will and our life over, which means we're going to start to try to live in harmony with the moral laws of the universe. And after that, we start to try to clean up our past. Uh, and this is really the beginning of trying to do what uh, one teacher calls interrupt the karmic flow. This is really, really the work of this of any spiritual path is to change our karma, to change our kar- the, the direction of our lives. Uh, very difficult. Um, so we writing inventory, uh, asking God to remove the defective character, which I will explain in Buddhist terms in a c- couple of days, it'll, so that it'll make sense, uh, and you won't have to depend on waiting for God to do something for you, and then making amends, continuing to practice inventory and take inventory, and then, of course, prayer and meditation, and finally, service, of practicing these. In case you missed anything, practice these principles in all these affairs. You know, uh, Just do this all the time, which is what we talk about in the Buddhist practice, daily mindfulness. You know, mindfulness isn't something to just do for your when the morning and the evening in your meditation is something to do throughout the day. So these two uh, paths, they bear a lot of similarities, but they have different emphases. And uh, it's very important to me, the difference between the two, because I wouldn't be trying to teach them together if I didn't think that they didn't both have... Um, it's not that either, they both actually, neither of them lacks anything, but I think the emphasis becomes interpreted by us in a way that we wind up lacking something. So the thing that's, that is pretty clearly lacking if you go to 12-step meetings is meditation practice. You know, very few, there's, it's right there, people talk about it, they talk a good game. Have you ever been to a meeting where it was a meditation meeting and they meditated for three minutes? I have. That was their idea of meditation, three minutes. I don't even remember that I'm meditating for the first three minutes. The Buddhist path, you know, but it's in there. Meditation is in there, right? The Buddhist path, as we've interpreted it in the West, is this thing where you go to this very pretty, beautiful, sacred place, meditation center. You walk in and you're very spiritual, you know, and you're very quiet. And you sit down and then the great teacher gets up, and, you know, and they give a meditation. You sit there and you meditate and your mind goes all over the place and you're totally out of your mind, but nobody knows because you're not telling them. <laughs> and then they ring the beautiful bell. And the teacher gives this beautiful talk, and you're inspired. And then you go home, and you live just the way you were living before. <laughs> you know? And you know, and there's a little uh, disjunction in there, something that's not quite connecting. You know, 
the Buddha didn't say the path is be silent. Don't talk and act spiritual. That wasn't the way he taught it. We, this is, uh, again, you know, uh, uh, just a very Western thing, and I don't know exactly what it is, but we're, we want to look good. We're, we're, we've adopted this, this Asian tradition, you know, uh, where people sit on the ground with their legs crossed. And when, if you start to do that when you're 40, well, forget about <coughs> it. You know? Some of you may be lucky and be flexible and be able to do that. But, you know, in Asia, you know, one teacher says, well, the, you know, the reason people sit on the floor in Asia is because they don't have chairs. <laughs> if they had chairs, they'd sit in chairs like, you know. <laughs> they just don't have them. So that's why they sit like that. And we think it's because that's how you get enlightened. <laughs> you know, when I had to switch from the floor to a chair because of my knee, I just felt like crap. I felt like, oh, I'm not, not going to be able to really meditate anymore. People are get, nobody's going to respect me. Nobody, who's, going to, who's going to listen to a Dharma teacher who's sitting on a chair? You know, obviously not enlightened, you know. So we get, this, we get confused. We get, and the confusion is about what this talk is about, which is about cause and effect. We don't understand cause and effect. And, and well, we shouldn't, <laughs> because it's in the law of karma. You know, the, this is what the Buddha taught was karma. I mean, this is all about karma. He said, you know, I wouldn't even teach you this if it weren't possible for you to change, because because of actions there are results. So you can change. A lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people think that everything is fate, and certainly in his culture, a lot of people didn't believe that that they could change their fate. But this is the core teaching of the Buddha, that actions bring results. So meditating brings results. Praying brings results. Uh, Concentrating brings results. Service brings results. All these things bring results. But we don't know exactly what results are coming right now from what in the past. Sometimes we can see that, but a lot of times we can't see it. So we get confused about it. The, The Buddha said that if you try to unravel your karma like figure out how you got here, you will go crazy. He just said, you know, that's, forget about it. That's a waste of time, which puts a lot of therapists out of business, I know. But um, they want a mindfulness? Hey, we'll give them mindfulness. No, I'm kidding. I've been in therapy for years. Uh, It's great. It's a great way to spend your money. Pass your time. Anyway. I'm sorry. We're going to edit this talk, right? We'll be able to delete those parts. So we get confused about cause and effect, and, and we think that if I go on a meditation retreat, then I'll be able to get sober. You know? um, or if I um, go to AA, my wife will come back to me. Um, if I get this job, I'll be happy. Yeah. You know what always happens to me when I get a job? I'm happy until I have to show up at work on Monday morning. <laughs> and then I'm just at work. So I was like, 
so, you know, karma is, is a mystery. It really is. Uh, and the specifics of it are a mystery. But what we need to do is not a mystery, fortunately. And this is what the Buddha taught. And this is what the 12 steps teach. They teach a path of karma, a path of action. Right? It's a program of action. That's what the word karma means, action. Now, actions happen in many ways. One of the most significant forms of action that we take, do, is thinking. And another really important kind of action is the way we respond to our emotions. Obviously, the outer actions are vital as well. But there's a tendency to think that when we talk about cause and effect, what we mean is, if I'm really good and I behave well, then I'll get the car or I'll get the relationship. You know, my outer world will look good. Because once again, we're confusing cause and effect. We think that uh, objects bring happiness. But what I think is often overlooked in, the, in this cause and effect is the moment-to-moment arising of emotional and mental karma that happens both through our actions, through our thoughts, through our reactions to our feelings, through our reactions to our thoughts, through our speech. Moment-to-moment, you can feel how your karma is unfolding. You can't, again, you can't always know where it's com- coming from, but many times you can. And this is where we can uh, really see how uh, the, how actions bring results. So, I'm not, um, so, so just for the, this example, you know, our tendency, you know, and it even says in the, in the Pali Canon, in the Buddhist teachings, that, you know, a generous person will wind up uh, being rich in their next lifetime, something like that. There's something like that, yeah. So the Buddha has these little cause and effect, you know, if you do this, you'll, you'll have that later. But, you know, maybe, maybe not, right? But what we do know is that when we give, we feel good. And that's happiness, right? Being rich in your next lifetime, you know, sounds, sounds good, I guess, but you don't know, really, if that's going to happen. And what you do know is this is happening right here, right now. And that's, that's where I think that the law of karma is most relevant to our lives. We don't have to think of it on these kind of lifetimes and lifetimes terms or, you know, I'm working towards this, uh, this enlightenment or some great experience. It's here right now. And this is where our attention, through our control of our attention, our application of mindfulness, we can see it benefiting us in the moment. Mindfulness has this self-healing quality where just by paying attention to something, 
it has a healing effect. It's like when you go to visit someone in the hospital. You know, you might go to visit them, and when you leave, their condition has not improved. But they feel better because you came and you paid attention to them. Not because you brought them any pills or any healing, but because attention itself has a healing quality. And we can do the same thing for ourselves with attention. The other thing I want to say, kind of going back to the beginning of this talk about about how things unfold, is that this this path is... uh, a lifetime's journey. It's not about going on a retreat and getting an experience. You know, I came here today to get, hoping to get X, Y, Z. You came on the retreat hoping to get X, Y, Z. That there isn't anything to get, you know. And what the path is its own reward. It's not like, oh, I'll... I'll do Buddhism for a while, once, and then once I get that thing straightened out, I'll do something else. You know, it's not like that. Any more than I'll stay sober for a while, and then I'll be able to go back to drinking normally. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are some people who can, but just generally speaking, this, isn't, this doesn't um, happen. And, and just to put it more blatantly, if I stop drinking for a while, it doesn't mean alcohol will stop affecting me. Maybe I will be able to drink normally, but alcohol is still going to affect me. This path requires a kind of devotion that, you know, maybe if I'd have known when I started, I I wouldn't have started. Or if I'd have known what was going to be involved in it. This past uh, February and March, I sat a one-month retreat, and... During the retreat, I was doing walking meditation um, one day, and I caught myself in the middle of a re- reviewing a painful memory. And I stopped walking and realized that it was a memory that I had thought about on it was something that had happened on my first retreat. And it was something that I had thought about on every subsequent retreat. And I've been on a retreat about once a year for the last 29 years. So that was about 28, more than that, probably about 35 retreats that I thought about this painful memory. And I had never realized in those 30 or so retreats that I was just reviewing a painful memory for no reason. That it was accomplishing nothing except it was causing me suffering. It was very addictive and it shocked me. And in that moment, it felt like and still feels like there was an uprooting that happened. What we call a transformative insight. An insight is when we see something and we realize it. A transformative insight is when we see something, we realize it, and it stops affecting us, which is what happens when you get sober, right? That's when someone has the desire for to drink removed. That's a transformative insight. 
very high experience. It was lifted, but, and, and I don't know, you know, may come back. But for now, that has been lifted. And, but what was disturbing to me was that I had missed it for all these years. That maybe I had noticed, but I had never seen it. I mean, it was just so obvious. There was nothing, it was not an insight into anything fabulous. You know, it wasn't one of those ones you go brag about, you know. It was kind of trivial and stupid. Like, what, you know, I, I mean, in some ways I felt like an idiot, you know. But I, I mean, no, don't worry. I wasn't really feeling bad. But it was like, that's unbelievable. I felt so good that I couldn't feel bad. You know? But it was really unbelievable. And it just really pointed to me that karma, the fruits of karma appear when they are ripe. When the karma has ripened, it's ready to eat. It falls from the tree. You can't pull it from the tree. You can't make it ripen any faster. All you can do is just keep showing up. And, you know, on this retreat, you will have some insights, some things that you'll just, like, wow, things will, things will become clear. Other things, it might take a while. You know, you just, you don't know. You can't control it. It's, it's another one of those things we just have to turn it over. It's, it's frustrating, and yet it's liberating. Because, thankfully, I'm not responsible for the results you know, if I had to decide uh, what my karma was going to be, I mean, uh, you know, it'd be, I'd be a mess, you know. Uh, you know, I've learned that I just need to show up and try to take the tools that have been given to me by my teachers and by my program, by the teachings, by my sponsor, you know, and by all the people, by my wife, my daughter, you know. Take all the teachings and try to the best of my ability to ask myself in any moment, which of these tools would be helpful right now? You know, I don't ask myself, you know, what would Jack Cornfield do under these circumstances? You know, I'm not Jack Cornfield. You know, I'm not the Dalai Lama. Their solution isn't going to work for me in this moment. I have to figure out my own solution in this moment. That's why it takes so long. You know, because you're meditating with the same mind that got you in trouble in the first place. So I'll, I'll read just this very short piece from the Buddha. This is a book uh, by Tan Jeff, who is a great... Uh, he's an American who's a Buddhist monk, and he's a translator and a, and a real scholar. Uh, and this is a book about stream entry, which is the first stage of enlightenment. And it's, called, and it's called Into the Stream. And the first chapter is called The Way to Stream Entry, which is the kind of thing that I want to read because it's a lot like how it works. The Way to Stream Entry. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. How do I do it? Association with people of integrity is a factor for stream entry. People of integrity. Okay, you can find them. 
listening to the true Dhamma is a factory factor for stream entry. Ah, hey, this is good. We're two for two. I hope. <laughs> I hope I've been speaking the true Dhamma. <laughs> Whatever, true enough. <laughs> Appropriate attention is a factor for stream entry. Well, we've been doing that, of course. And practice in accord with the Dhamma is a factor for stream entry. So let's sit for a few moments. Association with people of integrity is a factor for stream entry. Listening to the true Dhamma is a factor for stream entry. Appropriate attention is a factor for stream entry. Practice in accordance with the Dhamma is a factor for stream entry. Thank you for your appropriate attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.